I'm so excited to bring you this episode. My two guests, Bradley and Logan, bought, grew, and sold a local landscaping business in Austin, Texas. You know from the headline that their sale price was eye-watering, especially for a couple guys not yet 30 years old. So the story itself is spectacular. From not knowing what a search fund was in 2017 to selling the business they'd acquired to a public corporation just three and a half years later. But what I actually love most about this conversation is all the strategy that got them from point A to B. We go deep on how Bradley and Logan took a project-based business with chronic and existential cash flow headaches and made it a recurring revenue machine with a predictable sales function. Now, their business happened to be landscaping, but the lessons you'll learn here are applicable to so many service businesses where there is both project revenue and contract or recurring revenue to be had. Now, you already know how coveted recurring revenue is as a searcher, but it needs to be emphasized. In Bradley and Logan's case, it made the difference between a fragile, hanging on by their fingernails landscaping business to one that was healthy and growing fast and beating its competition and ultimately worth eight figures to a large and sophisticated acquirer. Now, Quick aside about that sale number. You'll hear at the end when I do some quick math to arrive at a number in the 25 to $30 million range. Just to give some more space to that here, though, Bradley and Logan, of course, can't disclose any information about Brightview's valuation math and acquisition price, but there is an article on the industry site landscapemanagement.net that says Brightview acquires at between five and seven times EBITDA. So call it six. I assume that's from public filings, Brightview being a publicly traded company. Then the 2019 revenue of WLE, Bradley and Logan's company, is listed on that same industry site's top 100 list from that year as 23.5 million. Finally, industry standard EBITDA margins in landscaping are in the low 20s. So if you multiply all these numbers together, industry margins, by WLE's revenue in 2019, by Brightview's average acquisition multiple, my math gets $28.2 million. So this is just me on a napkin, obviously, but it seems like a fair way to calculate their sale price much more specifically than just saying eight figures. Of course, I couldn't get any confirmation from anybody, but mid to high 20s feels realistic to me. Now, I like to know the numbers, especially the big ones. So hopefully I didn't lose you in the weeds there. Okay. And lastly, this interview is over two hours. I feel like this intro is almost over two hours. (laughs) I tried to cut, but there was just so much good stuff. I really didn't cut much at all. So it's in two parts. I'll release part two on Thursday. Please enjoy this story and education from Logan Brown and Bradley Rufner. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy side advisors, but they'll cost you. 
to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The Lab is a do-it-with-you-by-side advisory service, not do-it-for-you. Founded by Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, the Lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort-based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Bradley Rufner and Logan Brown, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Thanks for Absolutely. having us. Thanks, Paul. Last year, the two of you sold a landscaping business to Brightview. Brightview is the very large landscaping corporation, publicly traded, that's known for growing through acquisition. And you yourselves had acquired the landscaping business that you sold to Brightview. So this is a story of two acquisition entrepreneurs buying a small local services business, growing it, and selling it to a much larger player some years later for, I think it's safe to say, uh, a solidly eight-figure sum. We'll get into that later in the interview. Today, we are going to relive this journey and glean what we can from it, because I think that what you guys have done is really the dream for many, uh, many people in the Acquiring Minds audience. So let's start off with some background. Please share with us how the two of you met. Yeah, so Bradley and I met and actually our first two weeks of college, we were going to the University of Texas at Austin. We were both interested in business. We were pledging the same Christian fraternity at UT and uh, we met up over a dinner and we actually like shook hands 50-50 after that dinner on uh, splitting up a business that we knew we wanted to start at the time together. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the origin story. That was 11 years ago. Well, what transpired in this conversation or this first meeting that that gave you both such confidence in the other that you know you you went in fifty fifty on a on a business <laughs> on a partnership? Yeah, I, I think we just just saw well that we just had you know kind of tremendous overlap in mission, vision, values, what we wanted to do with our lives, what we wanted to spend our time on, and it's kind of like a moment where it was like you two, like we had you know just such compatible views for our life and what we wanted to do that it just made sense to uh to work together start start right away not lose any time and you know i think we were always you know just enamored with the idea of having equity in something we were both entrepreneurs wanting to grow a business or businesses and i uh, just really wanted to start right away mm -hmm. and i mean that, that's in incredible uh to that kind of origin founding story and, and meeting and immediate compatibility. Were you both as kids kind of investing nerds, entrepreneurs? Give me just a little bit of your respective personalities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Investing nerds is probably a good, uh, a, a good way to explain it. I mean, we were both high school entrepreneurs. We both had uh, dads that helped us get interested in business at a pretty young age. Uh, Ironically, actually, both of our dads had us investing in stocks at a pretty young age. My dad loaned me a little bit of money to go pick one stock. I picked Apple, so that worked out pretty well. And then uh, I started a small like <laughs> car hooked. wash. 
Yeah, exactly. That that didn't hurt. <laughs> and then I started a small car wash pickup and delivery service when I was 16 when I could drive. Um, that was like my first foray into, into business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and my dad was having me read 10Ks and publicly available information when I was young. He put together a program for me where every year I'd get a pick from a couple of different stocks that were available that would be interesting to to somebody at different ages in their life so when you're seven or eight you're looking at hasbro mattel when you're 14 15 you're looking at disney or you know another entertainment company uh chipotle when you can have a car ford or gm so every year we would talk about you know different companies available and then i'd get a pick uh, you know a stock that was fit to what my interests would be different ages in my life and i just always love you know, thanking people for supporting my business whenever we would go, you know, have Chipotle or, or see a Marvel movie. So I always understood that fractional ownership. You have a piece of the, yeah. you know, the income of, of, you know, whatever the spend is within the company. So I got into it that way and then you know, became an entrepreneur in high school. I had my own catering business and, uh, you know, just felt that bug since then. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's great. Well, I've I've heard the you know parents getting their kids uh, interested in investing story before, but that that wrinkle, Bradley, that your dad like gave you a basket of companies to choose from that that mapped to your interest where you were in life. That that's a definitely a, a clever detail that would you know mm-hmm. make a kid even even more engaged. And use that one. Okay, cool. So I assume, and are you guys both from Texas? Sure are. Born and raised. Okay, great. Um, okay, so you meet. You said it was your. You said it was freshman year when you were pledging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we met our first two weeks of college. First freshman two year. weeks of college, incredible. Okay. Yeah. And did you each already have an idea of what sort of venture or fund or something that you wanted to start? I mean, this this fifty fifty partnership was in what? What was the the vision? <laughs> so the first thing we did was we were selling uh, golf hats, actually. So we were using an idea that Bradley and one of his other high school buddies had come up with, which was to put uh, golf tees into hats. So there was like an elastic band that you would put the tees in. And mm-hmm. it was basically just so you could keep up with your golf tees while you're playing instead of sticking them in your pocket or sticking them up in the hat and stuff like that. So we had, mm-hmm. you know, a dinner where Bradley shared this idea and I was like, man, this, this is a brilliant idea. We should <laughs> definitely do this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was actually the first business that we split 50-50. Uh, but I do think from pretty early on, I don't remember exactly when, but but pretty early on, we had the idea of one day having an investment partnership. We really looked up to people like Warren Buffett and his model for partnerships that he had like back in the 60s, or was like kind of this friends and family thing that just kind of grew out of this high quality group of investors and friends that he had. And he was investing in the public markets and uh, so we kind of wanted to have like one of those types of investment partnerships. So we knew that pretty early on and we ended up starting a fund before we left college. So we got our Series 65 licenses and we put all the documents together and lo and behold, we had a, a hedge fund before we left the University of Texas. So that's what we were doing kind of our junior and senior year after we wrapped up the whole golf hat thing. <laughs> what, what, and what happened with the golf hat thing? Did you bring a product to market? Yeah, so we we were selling it mainly to um, mainly to companies that were putting on like events. So they do like a charity golf tournament, and we'd sell branded versions of our hat. 
Uh, and it was kind of like a unique giveaway item, gift item at the end of the tournament. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. we were working the whole time on getting some intellectual property on it. We were trying to get a utility patent and a design patent on the product. And that was a great learning experience. Um, but we weren't able to bring the utility patent process to close. And so there were a couple companies that we actually had some really fun conversations with that were somewhat interested in buying the patent and helping, you know, or, or having us help them design some products to release. Uh, Ahead Headgear was one of them and Under Armour. And so we got mm -hmm. to have some great conversations as college students with these companies mm -hmm. about trying to sell our product to them, but it ended up not working out and kind of falling apart at the end because mm -hmm. um, we couldn't get the patent. But yeah, I don't think we call Hattie our, our screaming success. No. <laughs> but, you know, I, th I think one thing we care a lot about is just starting young and having equity in something like being able to viscerally, vis viscerally feel the wins and the losses of having ownership in a business. And we just were able to learn so many lessons early, right before we got mm -hmm. into a bigger venture like WLE that I think served us well. And you know everybody is interested in talking to student entrepreneurs. So that was a very mm -hmm. helpful card for us to be able to meet people, sure. to grow our network. Um, so, so we're really glad we did start young. We're always advocates for young people to just try something. Yeah. Well, and so speaking of age, how old are you guys now? <laughs> well, I is the right age of 30. I just turned 30. Yeah, in September. Yeah, and I'm 29. I'll be 30 in February. Cool. Great. Okay. So um, you are working together through college. I assume, you know, you've, you're working on that business. And then you said by your senior year, you decided essentially to do uh, essentially a hedge fund. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right, and you had kind of mm -hmm. shuttered the, the 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 golf hat business, and so what? So tell us, kind of, what was the story there? You raised money from investors. You were seniors with this fund. You were going to go. This was your vision for the next ten years. Talk 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 us through kind of that next step in your careers. Yeah, this is a, it's a pretty fun part of the story. So we have this hedge fund. We're going into our senior year. And we just got it up and running over the summer of our, of our junior year going into our senior year. And we go to start raising money. And we're raising money under the premise of us operating a long-only kind of small-cap, micro-cap value investing fund. So investing really small companies, no shorting, investing equity in there, and, uh, and along for the ride. So mm -hmm. we go to raise money. And the first meeting, surprisingly, goes really well. And the person says, all right, great. I'll give you some money. I think they wrote us a check for like $50,000. Uh, his name was Greg Davis. I was like our first investor after, after Bradley's dad. And uh, so we, we were so excited coming out of that meeting. And that, that got us like, we got, got us some momentum. Uh, and we kept raising you know, money for the next several months as we we're getting closer to the end of that year. And it was going really well, but eventually we kind of looked up and realized like these meetings are going really well, but now we've raised like, I don't know, you know, $175,000 or something. <laughs> we're like, if we're leaving college in, you know, six months, uh, this fund is not going to be large enough to sustain our lives. <laughs> so we're, we're raising money pretty slowly. And I think we came to the realization that people are not going to write massive checks to two seniors in college with a fund. Like we were getting mainly people who just believed that we were smart and hungry and they wanted to support us and they liked our idea, but uh, we weren't like talking to an endowment who was going to seed us with $20 million or anything. So we changed our strategy up a little bit 
and we started looking for a big strategic investor that could kind of anchor the fund. And then we could pitch that person's credibility and all the due diligence they would have done on us to decide to invest in us to the next round of investors, you know, and so on and so forth. Yep. So we ended up catching a really big break. Uh, and we met a guy named Steve Kuhn, who became kind of the anchor investor in our, in our fund. And uh, he ended up also becoming a large investor in our deal uh, to do WLE later. And so he was, um, yeah, he's a huge part of our story and was a great mentor to us as well as we were building out the hedge fund. And that's when things kind of got rolling for us. He, he joined, helped, helped kind of advise us um, and made a, made a big investment into the fund early on. And when you're raising a hedge fund, uh, your first fund and, and you're young, like what, what is the, the asset number that you're targeting? You, you threw out I mean, a, a number 20 million. Is it 20? Is that the number or what? No, no, <laughs> that would have been awesome. Uh, <laughs> we, we were really target, like we we're trying to get it to a million bucks in the fund was really the initial target. And we were trying to raise ideally like a hundred grand or so from each person, um, was mm -hmm. kind of the target. But, you know, as we've, you know, gotten older, I feel like we realize now everybody states a minimum in a fund, but unless you're like Bridgewater, very few people are too serious about that fund minimum. <laughs> you know, like you'll, if somebody says, Hey, I'll give you money. It's pretty hard to turn that down unless you're well oversubscribed. <laughs> so we were taking sure. checks anywhere from, I think our smallest investor was probably 25. And then our, our largest was about half a million, 600,000. Okay. And so what had changed about your strategy when you realized that you were raising too slowly was simply that you needed to get this kind of cornerstone investor, but you still were, you know, full steam ahead on the idea of doing a hedge fund. Yeah. Exactly. So you get this gentleman, yeah. you get this gentleman Kuhn as your, as your mm -hmm. kind of your cornerstone investor. Uh, and then can you share what number you eventually do get to? Is it, a, is it a million bucks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we got to right at a million. Exactly. Okay. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. So you're you've you're now what a year out of school or you're you're you've just graduated. You've got this million dollar uh, million dollars under management, and your intention is to do public market investing, but small micro cap. You said and and buy and hold, uh, and then what happens? How does the strategy evolve? <laughs> yeah. So we started, and we were having a very long term horizon mindset with this fund. So we were thinking. This was going to be our, our partnership, the beginnings of the partnership. We would invest this capital. We'd grow this capital over a long period of time. So starting with a million dollars mm -hmm. for us was, you know, just amazing. And we mm -hmm. started making long only value investments in the small cap markets. And we were trying to find areas where we could have edge, which that caused us to move lower and lower and lower down the market cap spectrum in the public markets. So eventually, you know, I guess we started looking at anything under about a billion dollars in market cap. Then we moved down 500 million. And then we were looking in the, the tiniest, most inefficient, least followed parts of the, of the market, which is like equities less than $10 million in equity value to where our capital could actually be a meaningful stake in those businesses. And then we just found that there's you know, several opportunities, several publicly traded equities that probably shouldn't exist in the public markets like, like it doesn't make sense to bear the fees associated with making all the publicly required filings 
you know, maybe there's a reason why it should be removed from the public markets. So then we got interested in doing more active style investments in companies where we would take a larger stake in the business and try and influence management. So hmm. af- after about a year to, of doing the delist, not necessarily. I mean, it, I would say it was a general shakeup. So we would be throwing out a few different potential strategies to the management okay. as to what we could do. So it might be like liquidate. It might be replace the management team. Like we, you know, you're taking advantage of these people. We need to get somebody else in here and kick you out. That type of thing. Uh, it could be D-list, it could be like a take private or uh, have somebody, you know, as a part of this liquidation strategy, take the company, you know, off the publicly listed markets. I have to say, guys, as whatever, 22-year-olds with a million bucks, you were you were awfully uh, Carl Icahn-esque. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, we, we were just trying to find edge for our capital. You, you know, we're competing against other people who have gone and gotten Harvard MBAs with a billion dollars under management, right? So how do we position our capital and our intellect in ways that are different and that are parts of the market that those people can invest in was kind of our strategy. You know, I think that's something that we we kept learning and kept iterating on with our investors. Mm-hmm. And we were just starting to realize, like, even in the small cap markets, if we found a value stock that we were really excited about, we might be paying eight times for that business. We might be paying 12 times for that business with no real catalyst for how those businesses would, would increase their value. And if we were getting involved in a micro cap stock, just the, the cost of accumulating those shares, the illiquidity in that part of the market, how challenging it is to be able to buy up enough of the company, were all barriers to us. So as we were thinking about a strategy shift, which we can talk more about in detail, it, it started to become more overwhelmingly obvious that our ability to buy an entire private business at a much lower multiple than we'd be excited about in the pri- in the public markets was probably going to turn into a better long-term trade for us and our investors. It, it's such a, a um, big pivot in strategy, not only just sort of financially speaking, but it means that you become entrepreneur, or maybe you weren't thinking about this initially, I know the end of the story, but it meant that you were <laughs> going to become active investors, entrepreneurs, operators, rather mm-hmm. than than guys kind of, you know, behind screens making invest, investment decisions. Yeah. So yeah, Bradley, you said like we could get into it a little bit more, share, share just share whatever additional detail is, is relevant here. Mm-hmm. I think it's it, it, it was uh, such a fateful pivot. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. Yeah, you know, I'm interested to hear what Logan would have to say, but looking back on it, I think you just compare the financial returns side by side as one place to start. So if we're buying a company in the public markets that's mature. I mean, it's it's gone through probably its highest rate of growth and is now publicly listed. We're buying that business between eight and 12 times. We're using zero leverage. 
and we're going to just hold that company passively. Like there's a certain return profile of that versus if you're looking at the small end of the private markets where you can use leverage buy a business at two to five times EBITDA and actually be involved in generating new sales. Like those produce pretty opposing return profiles, one being a lot more exciting than the other one. You know, and for us, having an entrepreneurial background, we just felt like we had all this pent up entrepreneurial energy that we wanted to use. Mm -hmm. And we were getting Mm -hmm. a little bit of outlet for that, like when we were doing more active style investments. But it it just didn't feel like we were using our our skill set, our time and our energy to the best of its abilities. And, And even a lot of people would say that the best public markets investors are ones who do all their research up front, build conviction in an idea that's got a really long runway, put capital work and do nothing. And that decisions to sell that company after you've bought it will be you know, compromising the return that you, you were initially envisioning when you made that investment. So that wasn't necessarily the most aligning with what we thought you know, we wanted to do with our time in our hands. So being able to buy an entire private business, be able to plug ourselves in as management and then operate and run that business to grow it was something that I think we really felt a, a desire to do. What do you think, Logan? Yeah, it was a bet on our own entrepreneurial spirit in many ways. And I think our investors caught on to that too. I think they could sense mm-hmm. that there was a new energy we had when we were talking about these activist investments we were doing. So I think they were betting on that entrepreneurial spirit and and we were too. And it didn't feel like a massive pivot at the time, you know, because I think we we were thinking about this, you know, even though it didn't happen this linearly, it was like passive investing. Passive investing goes to active investing. Active investing goes to active investing in one company where you wholly own it and you're very active in in that one asset. Um, But there were a lot, it was very dynamic time in our lives. Like we were talking to our investors a lot about this potential change. At one point we ruminated on like, maybe we should do both. We should keep trying to run the hedge fund and raise a separate amount to go buy this other company. We had partnered up with our friend Cade Thomas to... Uh, to to eventually go buy this you know company and so we we had like three partners and we were figuring all the different ways that we could attack uh, this problem and just eventually decided it was the best move to completely liquidate the fund take it all raise more money raise debt and then put it all in one basket and buy you know this company that we had found and then negotiated a deal on. So you had found the company uh, before making this decision to go be acquisition entrepreneurs. So it was kind of like you, you, this opportunity came across your desk as you were looking at all these opportunities, and that's all that. And 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 you kind of thought about how what you could do with this opportunity, the WLE, the landscaping business, um, and then kind of that's how you made the decision. So you, so another way of asking, you didn't do like a quote unquote search like a lot of my guests have done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was very unconventional, and we didn't even know that terminology at the time, actually. So we wouldn't have called it a search fund. But um, it's very similar to what we were doing. You know, We were looking for a private company in a certain geographic region. We wanted to stay in Austin, and we were trying to find an asset to purchase. We were just doing it in the context of already running a hedge fund and thinking this would be a great investment to kind of add into the portfolio and we we're trying to figure out how we could configure the fund to try and do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the part that was weird about our experiences. It wasn't like this pure play on, 
I have a job, now I'm gonna go start searching for a company for two years and I'll find something and buy it and run it. Um, our, our approach is a little bit different. We were kind of running a fund at the time, but we were basically doing a search fund on the side of running a hedge fund. Yeah, and we talk about now how we really would have benefited from knowing about the search fund community and some of the people that came before us. Like the Harvard Business Review book on entrepreneurship through sure. acquisition that came out mm -hmm. in February of 2017, I think in the beginning, and we ended up closing on our acquisition at the end of February 2017. And just being able oh. to read those case studies and, and having a market understanding of fee structure and multiples and everything and just what deals have done well historically would have been would have been a big benefit. So that's that's yeah. usually the first place we we point people is you know is that book and yeah like our, our investors didn't even know what yeah. this would have been called or what it was so we were having to pitch them on a structure and we were having to start from scratch on what that structure might look like yeah so we're like well what if we split the equity this way and what if we put these terms in and we have this capital structure to buy it and we try and raise the money this way and the yeah. debt this way like we were coming up with all this from scratch it would have been so helpful to have uh, a set of other examples to look at because then. You know, we're having to explain to our investors why we think we should even, yeah. you know, have this much equity in something. We're like, well, we're personally guaranteeing it and we're going to run it ourselves. So like, here's yeah. why we logically think that <laughs> this is yeah. the conclusion, but we didn't have anything to point to and be like, hey, look, these other 20 search funds all have these types yeah. of terms. Yeah, we thought yeah. we were kind of recreating the wheel with this. Like we were thinking about it in terms of kind of like a micro LBO and, you know, that, that was something our investors could latch on to, but just the idea of doing it at the size and the amount of leverage you'd use and what that means for the, the operator running the business was, yeah, but it was totally new to all of us. Well, people often complain today about how hard search is, how hard finding that great business is because there are many searchers out there now and it's become more competitive. But the flip side is that if, even if you were to have done this in 2015 or 2010, as you said, there was no, there, there were no playbooks and, and, you know, buy then build or the Harvard book written yet. So you were also, you know, at a disadvantage because you were all having to, you know, figure all of this out from scratch. And now searchers today don't have to do that. So uh, pros and cons to, to, to being a searcher today. Uh, and so how had you found or how had WLE, the landscaping business come across your desks? Yeah. So it was actually, uh, when we bought it, it was called Weigelt enterprises pretty tough name to spell and to say uh which is why it eventually got changed but it was the it was the last <laughs> name of the person who owned it and we found it through a broker i believe it was actually our third partner kate who originally uh, found the deal uh, but we found it through a broker and we started working directly with that broker and then directly with the seller and uh, we found it in kind of late 2016 in the fall of 2016 and then we closed about six seven months later in 2017. So you had reached out to brokers and said, hey, we're interested in deploying capital into a local business. Yeah. Yeah, we had a pretty loose search criteria <laughs> and, and we were going out and trying to, you know, <laughs> turn over rocks and find deals uh, locally. And we knew we wanted to find um, low multiple of EBITDA. We wanted to find a business that we thought we'd have an operating edge in. Um, and we wanted to find... I, th I think we were calling it boring business back then, but that might just be, I hear that more now. You might've said the words unsexy, mm -hmm. just finding is something that was unloved. And mm -hmm. I think we had seen, you know, many of our peers or what was popular at the University of Texas was starting up a business, growing something that was technology related, zero to one. 
and we were trying to think, well, you know, there's, there's probably a gulge of businesses that need to turn over. We're young, we're hungry, we can run it. And, you know, a lot of owners have kids that maybe don't want to run those businesses. Like who's going to want to take over the janitorial company? That could be us. And we started looking at all sorts of different businesses, towing operations, we looked for cleaning businesses, coffee shops, breweries, landscaping companies. Our third partner, Kate, had a background in landscaping, which made that area seem attractive. And, you know, we didn't have a, a good idea of how large we wanted to buy. Some of the businesses we were looking at were extremely tiny. Um, but we were just kind of enamored with uh, the difference in multiple, uh, having control, being able to grow the business. And that was kind of our North Star that led us into this market. And I'm really glad we found Wagled Enterprises. I think we're, we're also advocates in many ways for finding businesses that are listed, because that means the sellers already contemplated selling, it's got a number in mind, like a lot of that work has already been done, right? And we were experiencing the headaches of trying to go <laughs> and sometimes literally knock on doors and, and convince people to sell. Yeah, like we just walk, we'd walk <laughs> into a coffee shop, like you're gonna go buy a cup of coffee and we would legitimately go to the like barista and we'd be like, hi, we have an investment fund and we got a yeah. pitch for you. <laughs> like, we'd be like, do you know who the owner of this establishment is? Yeah. And, uh, and then we'd, le- we'd legitimately try and network our way through the barista yeah. to the owner of the coffee shop chain and, uh, and start talking to them about, like, you know, what, what should be interested in selling your business. We did yeah. that with towing companies, which is a fairly scary one. Kate, mm-hmm. Kate and I pulled up to a towing company one time, and it just didn't feel like the safest environment mm-hmm. we'd ever been in. Yeah. I mean, we just didn't know. It's, that's yeah. part of the, um, <laughs> you know, the negative that I have experiences. We, no one told us about Axial. No one told us about Biz by Cell. Like we, we just did not really have a framework for where most deals happen. So we were just going mm-hmm. out and trying to Pound find them on our payment. own. Yeah, Pound and, and but and then eventually you learned that there was this thing called a business broker, and and they could <laughs> help you a little bit at least, so you no longer had to literally knock mm-hmm. on doors. Yeah, we found we found a few brokers pretty early on, but we found what I would call the like bottom of the barrel of of brokers who then were trying to also pitch us the bottom of the barrel and businesses like businesses that are just jobs, you know, like they were tiny, yeah. tiny, tiny things, but we were, yeah, eventually after all of the initial, uh, you know, attempts, we, we landed on, uh, the broker that brought us you know, Gelt as well as we had found biz by sell and a couple other things. So we had, we had at least looked, I would say maybe at a few dozen businesses, but nothing compared to like what, people are looking at today where someone might be running a fairly sophisticated process to reach out to like a couple thousand businesses in a cold email or something. Uh, yeah. We weren't doing yeah. anything on that level and, and didn't have anything really proprietary other than driving around and knocking on the doors of local businesses. Well, I, I've said to guests previously that Biz by Sell um, provide often provides this like aha moment to a lot of people. It's like, wow, look at all these businesses for sale. This is cool. But like, I imagine the aha moment that it gave you guys would have like blown your minds. You were like, wow, we were (laughs) no more going to towing shops. We could actually just look at this site. This is amazing. What have we been doing? Yeah. Yeah, But it's cool. I mean, it's so scrappy. It's so scrappy what you guys were doing, like an entrepreneurial, you know? Uh, So I, despite the fact that it was, unsophisticated and you can laugh about it now there's i have to say there's a certain romance to it <laughs> yeah easy for what me to say i wasn't the one doing it <laughs> yeah about brent oh yeah well I, I guess we had brent b as kind of like our warren buffett style 
uh, yeah. model for this part of our lives. It, it, I just remember hearing him talk about how the way all these deals get done is like a thousand state dinners and you got to travel around and meet people. And that was kind of an idea we took literally. We, we, we didn't necessarily know what the top of the funnel looked like for him to actually find these people to then go meet them and take them out for a steak dinner. But I guess, yeah, it, it being people that were behind the computers with, you know, unlimited number of companies to look at in the public markets, we, we didn't necessarily know how limited the private markets would be at any given time, right? You can buy any public business you want at any time, as long as the market's open, private yeah. businesses come up for sale and that's the time that they're available. And yeah. Yeah. It also, I think one thing, well, is it gave us a good framework for not putting too much pressure on finding the perfect business. Cause we just, because we had the benefit of not knowing about this whole market and, and all the other types of deals that people have been doing, we didn't have, you know, a Twitter feed of like everyone, you know, talking about this amazing business they just bought. That's, you know, got all these great features and meets all this criteria. And so, I think it put less pressure on us in one sense because we were willing to compromise in a lot of areas. Now we can get to into a conversation about where that was smart and maybe where it was not smart, but it certainly allowed us to have some freedom and feel like, okay, we're going to buy something and it's going to be imperfect. And then we're going to try and really make something out of it through our hard work and our effort. We're not just trying to go find kind of the perfect business to buy. Um, and I, and I think not knowing uh, too many examples was a little bit of a benefit you know, to us at that point. That's, that is such a great point. And uh, it's, it's one that comes up from time to time. It's like now, again, that the, the search has become more mature and more well-known uh, and there's so many examples, the, the, there's the, the perfect business syndrome that afflicts a lot of searchers because they're all looking for, you know, recurring revenue, you know, X, Y, Z. And even though, even though they would also all say, well, I know that doesn't exist, uh, and I, you know, I, I should probably be a little bit looser in my criteria. It's hard to do that when you have been told that, that no, these are the desirable characteristics. So it's, it, there's, there's a, a tension there that, that, um, you guys didn't have to deal with. You just, yeah. you know, we, go ahead. We ended up, we ended up writing an article on compromise to close was the title. And it mm. basically talks about this, that idea that like, you do have to decide at some point what you're willing to compromise on if you actually want to get a deal done. So we've just yeah. seen a lot of searchers have this like hard set core criteria that they're pretty unwilling to compromise on. And it's like, I want kind of a 10 out of 10 business to buy and very, very, very few of those exist. And if they do, you know, there's a ton of competition. It's probably already gone. <laughs> so yeah. you yeah. have to kind of be, you have to be willing to compromise and you have to know what is a smart area for you to compromise on based on your skill set and experience and background versus maybe areas that, you know, you shouldn't compromise on. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. an anecdote we hear is a lot of people set out with a certain timeline for their search. And it just so happens that the business they buy is at the very end of their timeline, you know, in our opinion, largely because that you have to do a deal at some point that that's an experience that I think a lot of people can resonate with. And I think something we are big advocates of is, is knowing up front, like these are my core criteria. However, I'm uniquely able to actually have some compromises on those criteria because there's areas that I have strengths that I can go improve the business yeah. to make it more like what I'd like it to see versus what it is today. And, and, you know, we think about edge from our time in the public markets, like you have to have some reason for buyer business fit that makes you the best candidate for finding that business. If it's a competitive process, unless you, you found it on your own or had, you know, kind of a first look on it, 
So I think we're really encouraging of, of finding ways where you think you can add value on a business to where it currently exists to take mm-hmm. it to where it would, might be the perfect business you'd want to buy and not necessarily trying to find that business right mm-hmm. out the gate. Because mm-hmm. for your point, it probably has gotten more competitive for that perfect business. And then probably the other half of the story is that that syndrome you were talking about that makes it feel like it's so much more overwhelmingly competitive. But people have been buying and selling businesses in the United States for 200 years. Like, the search fund model is not new. It's new in the sense that we've wrapped kind of that package around it in a certain market mm-hmm. fee structure and things like that. But, you know, deals are going to get done. And, and part of that is figuring out the way that you can go find the right deal for yourself to get done. For yourself. And, and just uh, people can kind of infer from the word, but if they're not public market investors, when you say edge, you mean what exactly? And then map that directly onto our world, mm-hmm. please. Yeah. So when I say edge, I mean some unique characteristic capability for you, your experience, your capital, your um, outlook on a market, outlook on an industry that, that makes you poised to be the right person to buy that business. And that could mean that you're the person that is able to pay the most for the business. That'd be maybe the most obvious way that that would come through. For a strategic acquirer, there's many reasons why they're the ones who are able to pay the most for a business because they have synergies that you're not going to have as an a person that's buying that company to then operate it, right? So I, I think for us, for our edge, is we we wouldn't have called it this at the time, but I think we were a little more willing to go kind of buy the job. It, the business we bought had enough EBITDA to where it's not like, you know, we had to be the ones doing all the work in the business. But I think we were very interested and eager to clean up a business and to take a business that was not as marketable and bring in professionalization, bring in, you know, kind of a higher level of, um, skill set compared to the market and then to try and let that be our edge. Because again, we were used to competing against Harvard MBAs in the public markets and it was pretty enticing to think about competing against you know, people that maybe didn't go to, didn't go to college that are mm-hmm. proprietors of landscape companies. A lot more mm-hmm. street smarts than us, but you know, potentially there was an area that we could outcompete in professionalization. So that's, that's one edge that we have. What do you think, Logan, about other Excellent. edges we had? Yeah. I would say like a, the classic example to explain this is like if a guy's worked in the airline industry for 30 years and then he goes to advise a hedge fund on investing in airlines, right? Like that hedge fund is now going to try and promote that they have an informational edge in investing in airline companies because they have someone who's been a 30-year executive. Um, so similar, like mapping that one-to-one, if you are somebody who's worked in a SaaS company for 15 years and now you you went and got your MBA and now you're trying to go buy a business and you've launched a search fund, you buying a SaaS business, you would say, I have an informational and experiential edge in buying these types of businesses. So I can probably better understand, I can do better analysis on this company's value and maybe see something that someone who doesn't have all the experience is not going to see. That's my edge over the other player essentially in this deal. Yeah. Great. That's great, guys. Thank you. So tell us about why guilt. Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> How many employees, size, you know, uh, give us the bullet points. Yeah, so when we bought it, it had about 60 or so employees, six, zero, 60, and had a handful of management staff, maybe six or seven kind of management employees. And then it was doing about seven to eight million in revenue. Um, and it would be, what would you say reported EBITDA was when we bought it? 
uh, maybe about two, if, if you normalize it and adjust it, adjust it and did one point. Yeah. Seven high ones. Okay. Well, $2 million, but uh, that's, um, you know, that's going to be larger than a lot of individual first time acquisition entrepreneurs get their hands on unless they're doing a traditional mm -hmm. search fund. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we were able to buy this business one because it was largely project based revenue. So it was doing about a million in maintenance and the, the rest was new construction. You know, so I think the, you know, the market was bearing that price largely because of the fact that so much of the revenue was one time in nature, project based. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that allowed us to get in, um, get into a bigger business. We were, you know, we were excited about that. We, we, I think looking back, I might just cut it there. We'll let you talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ooh, what were you going to say, Bradley? Uh, <laughs> uh, the, so $8 million, seven or $8 million in revenue, about $2 million, call it adjusted EBITDA. And what was the acquisition price? So we got on that business for about $5.5 million. Yeah. And we brought in a little bit of extra cash to the balance sheet for working capital. Great. And did you recognize, even going into it, this distinction between uh, recurring, reve recurring maintenance revenue and construction revenue? I mean, did you, did you know what you were getting yourselves into with so little recurring revenue? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we had the language at the time. I, I think we were probably trying to justify to ourselves the deal, and we were probably trying to look at the project-based revenue through a unique lens of thinking it was more secure than maybe other businesses. And to a certain extent it was. We were doing a lot of direct to developer work in HOAs. And if you do a good job on the current phase, you're probably the preferred better for the next phase. But we mm -hmm. were probably looking at that revenue as a little too secure, thinking that we would be on those same job sites for multiple projects down the road. And we were kind of underwriting to that backlog in a way that was probably, um, it's probably you shouldn't do that. That should probably be a, an upside. Some things that you were not expecting that was a benefit. But for us, we were looking at that probably as more secure. You're, and did you use SBA financing for the deal? So we did. Our acquisition was a mix of seller financing and equity. We didn't use any SBA financing. Okay. That uh, because a good SBA lender is, is really going to lean hard against that construction versus maintenance mix. Um, yeah. And just for the audience, like this is this is a place where SBA lenders can a good SBA lender can provide a lot of value in your deal because they're another set of eyes, another layer of expertise that can really challenge you if you're being overconfident in, in the quality of a certain piece of the revenue, like mm -hmm. the construction revenue in your case. Okay, so you so what's so what's your vision? Your you uh, other than renaming the renaming the business on day one? What what is your what is your vision for for Weigelt? Well, yeah, we renamed it probably six months in, but it certainly was very early on. Um, our vision, you know, I would have, I would have probably told you at the time had a handful of components to it. Like one of these would have been grow the recurring revenue piece. That was yeah. certainly a part of the thesis, but it would have been like one of five points. We had this like document we started sharing with investors. It was like our five point plan type of thing. So that was like one of them. And then several other was would have been like, you know, we, we want to, grow and improve the management team. So have a better, more professionalized structure around having people that are trying to run the business without as much involvement from us would have been the ideal uh, at the beginning. We knew that we wanted to try and 
you know, expand this growing portfolio of high quality customers that the business had. So like Bradley said, we worked for a lot of premier developers in the area and that was a huge draw to us when we were buying the business. You had these really great big developers doing these massive communities, like multiple thousands of homes. And so you could easily go stand on one of those projects and just kind of look out at this expansive roadway and know, okay, if we keep doing a good job here, we get to do everything you know, that goes for miles down that way. Um, and so it was really appealing to try and go after more of those types of customers and continue to entrench ourselves with the ones we already had. Um, and then I think we had some idea of uh, building facilities down the road. I don't know how much of that would have been a part of our original plan, but like the facilities that they were in at the time when we bought the company were pretty meager. Yeah. <laughs> it was humble beginnings. We were in the back of a state farm office uh, in like a parking back of a parking lot of a state farm office. And then there was another site that was uh, behind the house. It was like the backyard of a house that was this really big, you know, sort of backyard area, dirt backyard area. And that's where all of the equipment was kept uh, for the construction side. And then the whole maintenance department was based out of the state farm office. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were like sharing, we had two offices or three offices inside the actual state farm office because the seller had, was running a state farm operation as well. So like really <laughs> meager, humble beginnings from an office space perspective. So I think it's to, to some extent we knew we wanted to grow into a more mature uh, professional you know, office setting and, and have much nicer facilities to run the operation out of for both hiring talent and efficiencies, you know, so that, that was in the first year we set out to build a new office space, um, as well. I'm surprised that a business was able to get to seven and $8 million in revenues being so rough around the edges. I mean, there's, you know, there, and $2 million in give or take in EBITDA, like that's, that's yeah. enough capital to, you know, Ha be working on off of more than a dirt floor in the backyard. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, you know, the story is the business was started in 2003. So it took our seller 14 years to get to that point. Right. And we mm -hmm. got to benefit from those 14 years of him figuring out how to make this business work for him as yeah. the owner. Right. So, yep. you know, I, I think about what it will look like for us to have tried to start that business from scratch versus what we yeah. bought. And just having the assembled workforce, the equipment, all the trucks, a facility to operate out of. Again, we're in Austin, Texas, and that is not an easy place to find anywhere to work out of, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think we saw a lot of room to improve it, but we also were very um, encouraged and thankful for all the work that, you know, Wayne had done with the business to get it to that point. And I think he ran it in a way that, you know, kind of maximized the value of the business to himself as the sole proprietor. So. Yeah, to use built to sell terminology, it was very owner centric. So everything was just built around his own personality, what he was good at, what he wasn't good at. But he was a super clever guy, and he had he had figured out to you know how to really maximize the value to himself out of the business from a very uh, lean operation. Yeah, yeah. So when we were looking at it, we saw Austin continuing to grow. This is 2017. So Hayes County was one of the fastest growing counties in America at that time. With you know, kind of no real signs of slowing down at all. And we knew that there was going to be a large pipeline of, of new work coming down the road and thought that this was a great team, a group of assets that already assembled to go pursue that work. And then on top of it, we can turn the business into more of a maintenance provider along the way and, mm -hmm. and really over-invest in that area because it was a part of the business that seemed very sticky. It had especially one big account that 
the seller had been operating on that development for probably almost since the beginning, right? Almost 10 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we just saw that kind of stickiness on the maintenance side, thought we could grow that. And as well as being able to purpose the construction, the development team to take advantage of the wave of new business coming into Austin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just to circle back on the, the backyard uh, facilities of the business, you know, I, I'm glad you I'm glad you kind of pushed pushed back a little bit because I do think it's easy for us to be it's easy to be disparaging of uh, a small business that feels rough around the edges like that. And what you and I should know better. I mean, what I've I've heard so many times from guests is that like, yeah, maybe from the outside it doesn't look like the slickest operation, mm-hmm. but there's so much under the hood that um, you know that that isn't that isn't. Uh, evident and that in fact whatever the backyard or the fax machine or whatever kind of miscommunicates you think it's an unsophisticated business but there's a lot of reason that things are the way they are and it's actually that actually dovetails into one of the the pieces of of advice for the transition like don't go in there changing too much too quickly you might see all these things that you think are wrong or are underdeveloped or are unsophisticated uh, and there may well be a method to the madness, so don't don't be too overconfident that like all this stuff needs to be fixed. Um, you know, as you said, the seller probably built this thing from scratch and, and may really know what they were doing. So, um, just a, a side point there. Okay, great. So we we understand your strategy. You. Um, you, you, and growing maintenance, you recognize the value of that because you're looking at the books and you're seeing that there there was this great maintenance customer that had that had been really sticky. You wanted more of that revenue. Um, one of the things that we've talked about in one of our pre calls was your strategy to grow the business. So you uh, have said, well, I'll, I'll let you. So, so how are you going to go out and get this new recurring revenue? What was the what was the yes. strategy? So this is this is where we also should get to some of the less glamorous parts of the story, which mm. uh, you know as, as soon as we started, our revenue was lower than expected. So the way that we had capitalized and financed the business was built around a certain model. Within the first three months, we were already in a cash crunch, and that's with the extra cash we had brought into the business. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that these development projects that we were kind of counting on to come online were not starting yet. And they represented a pretty large amount of the revenue and they're pretty slow to pay. So if they're not starting, like all this cash that we were hoping to get in at a certain period was not coming in. So we were, we were in a cash crunch within the first three months or so and needed, uh, you know, basically it, we had had to pull on our line of credit and do some other things to try and uh, to try and make up for that, that difference. And then also uh, as we were trying to fix that problem, uh, we started growing the construction revenue because that was kind of the easiest revenue to go out and get quickly, right? We could go bid projects, try and win projects and tell people we could start in them soon. And this was to help our sort of like revenue deficit problem. So even though we knew intellectually maintenance is more valuable, our real life situation was we've got to fix a revenue problem. The easiest way to do that is through construction. Well, that yeah. kind of started a fateful path where over a long period of time, we sort of aggressively grew the construction revenue in trying to fix a cash crunch problem. And in doing so, we really made our cash crunch problem worse. We just made it larger because we were aggressively growing a bad cash flow business to try and solve a cash flow problem. So if we went and started on a new project, even if we started quickly, you know, our costs started day one. I'm paying somebody to go out and I'm paying that person weekly to go out and work on this project. 
well, we might not get, you know, even the opportunity to build the project till the end of the month. And then it may take another 60 to 90 days to get paid, depending on how rough the, the project billing cycle is. So it might be 90 to 120 days before the first dollar comes in from, you know, the original date of the first cost that we incurred to do that project. So, and then if you grow that aggressively, you're taking on more and more and more of it. That means you've got more and more costs you're providing uh, as you sign on to more and more projects. You're hiring more people, you're buying more equipment, et cetera. So your costs are growing, but your revenue sort of bubble is uh, is still building in terms of it's not it's not converting to cash quickly enough. So we were kind of in a perpetual cash crisis for what felt like forever, but it's really from kind of three or so months after we bought the business till about two, two and a half years later. Um, and those were some tough times. So growing the construction department was, there's a lot we're proud of in the projects that we got to do. We got some really cool projects around central Texas uh, and we still get to drive past those projects and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but from a business perspective, it was a super hard experience to try and figure out how to solve that cash flow problem. Yeah, I feel my... Blood pressure rising. Listening to you retell that. Yeah. yeah well, well. Uh, elaborate just a little bit on the on the emotional piece. Were you guys in a panic, or was it fine, just hard, or what? Because the the transition moment can be just completely overwhelming for a lot of first time mm-hmm. acquisition entrepreneurs. Yeah, it was very stressful. I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of the exact emotions we were feeling. It almost felt like we had to just go, you know, figure it out and there wasn't time. And we didn't do a very good job of honestly thinking about what <laughs> we were feeling and the stress we were feeling at the time. Um, but, you know, I think we just felt really stretched. I think stretched to our, you know, ex- the limits of our prior experience. We were trying to learn how to manage 60 people, pretty much all of which, at least at the management staff, were older than us. And and dealing with, yeah, I, I think we underassumed how hard the the cash management side would be, and we overassumed how hard growth would be. So growth ended up not being as big of a challenge for us. Managing cash flow ended up being a challenge for us, and that's just not what we were expecting going in. And you know, I think you have to be malleable and flexible and adapt and learn how to address the problems that come up when they come up. Just yeah. not to belabor this, but the, on the cash flow crunch was so you had said, right, Logan, at the top of your explanation of that, that these projects that were in the pipeline for the business just were delayed or whatever. So that meant all the mm-hmm. revenue coming from those were delayed. So was it just bad timing of your acquisition or did your seller know this? Or, I mean, uh, you know, yes, I understand that the cash flow cycle is really unappealing. You know, f- you're, you're, you're paying your guys and only maybe four months later will you get the, that, that money back. But like that, shouldn't that already be baked into an operating business so that you, when you guys come in, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, re- you're receiving cash that was billed for four months ago. So it should be fine. Like he should have absorbed all of that pain by the time you step in 14 years later after the inception of the business. Yeah. I, I, to this day, still don't think that there was anything insidious done to try and manipulate the timing of projects and the timing of the sale. But I do think it just naturally happens where if you're running that business and you're running those projects, you sort of are wrapping up things uh, in a way that makes the most, you know, uh, that makes the best positive return to yourself as a person selling a business. And I, I don't think there's anything malicious about it. I think he was just trying to wrap up some of his big projects before he sold the company. 
yeah. knew that there were other phases. I don't think he lied about anything. I mean, I think there, there, we did end up working on a lot of these next phases of all, a lot of these projects. It really did just push, um, in a really unfortunate way from a timing perspective, right when we kind of bought the business and he had wrapped up a couple really big ones that had really big phases. So it really helped his trailing 12 month financials look really good. But then as soon as we stepped in a couple of those, it only took a couple, you know, to have wrapped up to where now there's no new revenue coming in immediately from those projects. They're waiting to start the next phase or they're stuck in a design phase of, you know, of a project before they can actually release it to be installed, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of different reasons for that. Yeah. But um, no, I don't think the seller did anything to try and manipulate that situation. I think it just was a sort of natural call. And we should have, we should have been prepared for it better than we were. We, we didn't bring enough cash, I don't think, for for us buying a fairly good sized construction company. We, we just didn't buy, we didn't bring enough cash into the deal to float all the working capital. Um, and we didn't do a, a deep enough dive, I don't think, on our init- initial analysis of the business to figure out how much capital it would really need if we stress tested a couple mm-hmm. situations, right? We just did our cash needs based on how everything had been going, but we did zero stress testing to say, okay, well, what if one project, big project push, pushes, how much capital would you need then? Cause like, that's not a crazy situation. You know I mean? Like yeah. projects yeah. push all the time. You got to anticipate yeah. that type yeah. of thing and be ready for it. Yeah. I think we had two different problems. The first problem was not having the work we needed to have initially. So we wanted to keep the entire workforce and that just meant that we were using that workforce to complete less projects. So we're, we're starting with somewhat of a margin problem, right? And then that's a bad place to start. And then the second problem became growth. So we were we were trying to outgrow some of these problems. And that looked like us nearly almost doubling the construction side of the business in a year. And I think one thing we didn't understand at the time was when you bring on a whole new set of customers that was different than what you had historically in a project-based business. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't really understand exactly what the payment dynamics are going to be like with those new customers. We brought on a lot of general contractor work that brought in a whole another set of intermediaries between us and the people that are actually paying us, right? Which slows down the time process even more. We started doing other types of work that we hadn't historically done that involved a lot of long lead time upfront deposits on items. So there are all these kind of hits to the cash flow model we weren't expecting while doing more work. So that's just a kind of a bad combination of multiple things that create a bad cash cycle. You know, and in, in hindsight, we can compare all this against our maintenance business. And, and that kind of informs a lot of our thinkings now about why maintenance is so valuable, um, why we, to a certain extent, wish we would have started with maybe even a smaller business, but maintenance only. Because um, we've kind of lived those experiences really upfront, close and personal, and felt the stress of, of floating two different types of businesses at the exact same time that are about the same size. Yeah, well, this is this is great um, that you guys are so experienced with this. We're gonna we're gonna continue uh, dissecting this, but I just want to distill uh, what I think what you said, Logan, about just for the listeners out there you know, maybe looking at a landscaping business or or some other kind of maintenance and or construction project-based business, what you think you didn't do as well as you could have during the acquisition was really kind of interrogating the quality of the pipeline of that project work. So really, like like you said, stress testing, what if one of these doesn't come to fruition? What if three of these don't come to fruition? Or what if they do come to fruition, but 60 days later? So that, mm-hmm. model that out. 
And then also, and this is maybe kind of maybe two sides of the same coin, like be more conservative with your working capital needs. Um, Mm -hmm. Have more working capital, but really that's going to be informed by step one, by, by interrogating your pipeline. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we give in terms of advice to first time searchers is, you know, thinking about how when you're in the search phase and even in the negotiating phase for a business, working capital tends to be like the last thing you think about. People don't even want to really bring it up until like fairly close to close. We've seen very often because like, well, it's going to be this, we know it's going to be kind of contentious a little bit. They're going to have, you know, we're already arguing probably about purchase price. And now we're arguing about deal structure and earn out or non earn out, like all these big kind of hairy things that are part of the negotiating process when you're trying to get to close. And then they get to working capital, they get it all worked out. Well, working capital might be kind of the last consideration or one of the last considerations of the big items in the deal making process. But as soon as you're an operator, working capital becomes like your whole life. (laughs) You know, how much cash you have. And you paying all your people and getting them paid on time and having enough money to float your operation, pay all of your expenses while you're trying to grab revenue and turn it into cash becomes the air you're breathing every day. And if you gave it more consideration in the deal-making process, it's going to make your life easier as an operator. If you gave it less consideration in the deal-making process, your life is going to be much harder as an operator. So I think giving way more thought overall, because most people who are looking to buy these companies are super smart. It's not a, it's not an ignorance thing. It's just a time and focus and thoughtfulness, like apply yourself to really thinking about cash flow, stress testing different situations. You probably should bring a little bit more cash to close than you really think you need. Um, and you should have com- conversations as early as you possibly can with the seller about working capital and start getting a lot of data on that and start working different situations and playing out different models to, to try and become an expert on it before you ever have to get into running the business. That is the end of part one of this interview with Logan Brown and Bradley Rufner. Watch your feed on Thursday for part two.